0: Welcome back Oscar enthusiasts, this is Jake, appreciate you tuning in. I'm so excited to share with you this conversation with Tim Meerhead from the Tone Benders podcast about sound editing and sound mixing. Just a heads up, we did record this before the nominees came out, so we didn't know totally what was going to be in the category. We cover a lot of the big ones. There's a few that we talk about that weren't nominated, and there are a few that were nominated that we don't really talk about, but I think you'll find the conversation to be hugely informative. Tim does a great job, so thanks for listening and here's our conversation. I am thrilled to be joined by my guest today, Tim Muirhead from the Tone Benders podcast. Um, thank you, Tim, so much for uh, taking the time.
1: No problem. It's great to talk to you.
0: So, Tone Benders for anybody who has not checked it out yet, absolutely is a must listen. I feel for for film fans. Um, I've obviously have no understanding of some of the technical aspects of sound, but I still find the conversations to be just riveting. Um, as far as kind of understanding what goes into the nuance of, of building out these worlds. How did you guys uh, get the idea to kind of start this podcast? And if you want to just briefly talk on some of your, your own history and sound.
1: For sure. Uh, I am a sound editor, a sound supervisor. So uh, I work mostly in animation, although in the past I've worked on uh, some features, lots and lots of documentaries and a lot of episodic television. But since about 2003, I've been doing almost exclusively Uh, animated series and some animated uh, features and straight-to-video animation. I like working on the sound for animation mostly because if you're working on a documentary or a film and someone pulls out a gun and it's a 45 and they shoot it, you have to go find the sound of a 45 and put it in, where in the cartoons when someone pulls out some weird laser beam I can make it sound like whatever I want as long as the director approves it. So there's a lot of creativity and a lot of uh, trial and error and just figuring out uh, what works. So it's uh, more, more creativity and less uh, see thing A, put sound of thing A in. Now that's also not easy, especially on a large scale film because, uh, for instance, we just interviewed the sound team behind John Wick 3. And I don't know if you've seen that film, but the guns in that film don't sound like real guns. So they like they're humongous sounding. Every gun sounds almost like a cannon almost. So like mm. there's tons of creativity and that kind of thing. But uh, I just kind of gravitated, I just kind of gravitated towards uh, doing sound for animation because it uh, kind of triggered the right happiness in my brain. <laughs> and uh, in terms of the podcast, it's called Tone Benders, and we talk with, uh, as I mentioned, people like the the sound team of John Wick Three. Uh, we also talk to people who uh, do field recordings, record the actual sound effects that go into movies. Uh, we record, we try and talk to everybody that works on the sound of television, film, and games. And the reason we started, it's mostly made for people who work in that industry. But as you mentioned, lots of people listen who don't. Uh, but a long time ago, in the before the kind of turn of this century if you wanted to do sound for TV or film, you had to work in a large facility just because there was a barrier to entry of money. You had to have a lot of money to have giant mixing boards, to have very expensive microphones, to have very expensive soundproofed rooms. So everybody worked in these large facilities and there'd be, you know, in each city, a few facilities that would have, you know, 60 people working at them. And then as computers got bigger and more affordable, uh plugins replace these huge racks of outboard gear that you would see. Uh, you, you can imagine recording studios when they have patch bays with cables going in and out of a million different things. It just be a big spaghetti, look like someone threw spaghetti at the wall. <laughs> that, that doesn't really exist anymore. It, it exists in like major, major facilities, but most people now can work out of their basement or work out of smaller one-person facilities where they just rent a kind of two-room facility where before they were in large ones. So what got lost in that is uh, shop talk. Before, when you got stuck on something, you could just kind of walk across the hall and ask the person in the next edit suite or mixing room, how do you do this? How do you fix this problem? And now that it's uh, so separated, everyone is, it's harder to get that talk. So we decided that it would be good to start this podcast where we talk to professionals. It goes out in the world and people can listen in and kind of uh, get that social aspect that's gone now that everybody's been so fragmented
0: that's really interesting you know what's funny too as you talk about kind of animation i wonder if that's common if like a lot of sound folks are are drawn to animation have you seen um i lost my body
1: i haven't seen it i've got a dvd of it actually a screener i'm in uh, motion picture sound editors guild which uh, so we get to vote on some awards so i got the screener for it but i haven't had a chance to watch i got it right before christmas so it's been a busy last couple weeks like you've oh, seen sure. it, obviously, well, so
0: it's worth checking out. I have, I, yeah, I, th- I thought it was really good. But there's actually fairly central to like a early part of the story is the kid, th- the main character as a child is like sound editing. He's basically like has a microphone and he's just capturing sounds in nature and like as sort of like a passion. Um, I think it's funny, kind of coming through in an animated movie that that was at least the experience of kind of that writer.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. That is how we when we talk to a lot of these professionals and myself, that's how a lot of us got into it. I have the interesting story of in Canada, where I am, there's a national broadcaster called the CBC. And one day I was and when I was in grade six, I believe I was walking home from school, and in the ditch beside the main road in town, uh, I found a pelican case. And inside the Pelican case was a dat recorder, which, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, was the most coveted piece of tech. It was a digital recorder, which was uh, an unusual thing. Everyone recorded analog at that time. Now, I'm in grade 6. I don't know how to use a DAT machine. It's a small, portable <laughs> thing. But I grabbed it, and I took it home, and the manual was also in the case. So I read the manual, and I started just recording things around the house. And then a couple hours later, my parents came home, and I was like, "Look what I found! This is the greatest thing ever!" And they were like, "You can't keep this." So uh, the gentleman from CBC, his business card was taped to the pelican case. So they had me phone him. And now that machines were extremely expensive. So when I phoned him, he was extremely happy because uh, he was going to probably get fired for losing this thing. He had a motorcycle yeah. that was strapped to the back of it, and it had fallen off and gone into this ditch. And I guess I grabbed it before he realized it was gone. So anyway, I got to go down and. Uh, to the CBC and return it to him and he gave me a little tour of the CBC and how everything worked and that was what really got my mind thinking and then I got my own little, uh, I just got a dictaphone because my parents were going to spend thousands of dollars on a machine for me but one of those little micro cassette dictaphones I got from uh, the local department store and that's when I started recording things and I used to love recording the sounds of movies like just play a movie with my dictaphone in front of the speaker of the TV and then when we'd travel and go on car trips and stuff I'd listen to movies. Uh, just the sound of them. And I I didn't know that, I didn't even realize it was a job to do sound for films, really. uh, The guy who lost the DAP machine was a reporter for news, so he wasn't doing what I do now. But that obviously had a big effect on my uh, growing up and just listening to the sounds and being affected by the emotions that the music and sound effects can put into a show.
0: That's amazing, it's like a Hollywood origin story. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I guess, except I'm not in Hollywood, but yeah. (laughs) um, Well, speaking of the Hollywood films, you know, I know we want to get into talking about some of the possible nominees this year. Now, in full transparency, um, you listener are, are listening to this on uh, January thirteenth or later, and thank you for doing so. Um, Tim and I are recording this um, much earlier than that, so we don't know for sure um, what the nominees are going to be. But I think we have a pretty decent idea of, of some of the movies that'll be in the mix. Before going like kind of into some of the top contenders, I think one of the basic questions that sort of outsiders like me have watching the Oscars every year. There's two sound categories and I think a lot of people probably don't know what the difference uh, between them are. So sound editing versus sound mixing, are you able to give us sort of a layman's understanding?
1: Uh, So sound mixing and sound editing are something that used to be done by two completely separate separate groups of people. Now uh, as I was mentioning earlier with the advent of computers and the fragmenting of the system. A lot of editors are doing mixing as they're editing. Now what's the difference between editing and mixing? Uh, The easiest way to describe it is sound editing is picking the sounds that end up in the movie. Sound mixing is balancing them against all the other sounds. So for instance, there are a lot of sound editors in a movie. So uh, there'll be a sound effects editor. In some movies like Avengers Endgame or something like that, there'll be an army of sound editors. Uh, And then there's a Foley editor. So Foley is the people who uh, do the footsteps and stuff live to picture. They walk with microphones at their feet at the same time as the people in picture do. And then someone goes and edits those to make sure they're on sync. Someone's editing the music because the composer will write the music and then they'll be picture changes. So then the music won't fit anymore. So someone has to go in and cut up the music to make sure all the the posts is what we call them uh, when you know a big explosion happens. So there's the big music hit there as well or something like that. Although we want the music hit off the explosion a little bit so you can hear the explosion first. But anyway, uh, music editor, foley editor, sound effects editor, dialogue editor is a major thing. Uh, because if you imagine on a set when people are shooting, they'll shoot a long shot so they'll shoot the whole scene from a bit of a distance and then they'll shoot the whole scene on one actor's face and then a shoot the whole scene on another actor's face and then they cut between all those shots during the scene but if in one of those scenes off in the distance there's a a big rig truck passing by and then when you cut from that take to the take of the other actor's face when they start talking suddenly that big rig truck isn't passing by anymore so there'd be a dropout all of a sudden So, someone has to go through and edit all those and find a way to make those cuts work and decide if you can't make it work to call for something called ADR, which is when the actors come back in a studio and uh, watch themselves acting and repeat what they said on set in a studio so you get a clean recording of it without the big rig truck in the background. Now, ideally, On set, someone would yell, stop, there's a big rig truck going by. But some directors are like, no, the actors are in their characters. This is the perfect take. We have to use it. So that's when you have Mm. to go to ADR. Uh, So there's dialogue editors, foley editors, music editors, sound effects editors. They all pick all the sounds. They pick which footsteps, which piece of music goes here, which sound effect goes here, build the sound effects. But they're not hearing what each other are doing. So then it all goes to a mix stage, which is a very expensive room that costs thousands of dollars a day to be in. And that's where the re-recording mixers come in. And uh, there can be one and there can be, well, I suppose an infinite number, but it's normally between one and three re-recording mixers. Uh, And they go through, they have all the sounds and they pick which sound is featured when, how to blend them all together. Because uh, for instance, as I said, when there's a big explosion hit, if the music hit really loud at the same time as the explosion, you won't hear both. So they go through and make it so that you hear the sound of the rock explosion and then quickly the music cue comes up and fades out of the sound effect and you can hear everything and the emotions are all uh, sent through. So the directors and uh, picture editors normally sit in on the mix because that's the final step of the entire film. Everything is done. well. Hopefully, everything is done, as we learned with cats over the holiday. Uh, Not everything is done until uh, who knows when, I guess now. But ideally, by the time you're going into the mix room, the picture is locked. All the sound effects, uh, sorry, the the special effects are in, or at least locked in on how they're going to be. They might not be fully finalized yet. So the director and the picture editor sit with the mixers and they nitpick over each sound. And uh, so the sound editing is a very creative thing. Uh, but it's also, uh, you know, you have to get certain sounds in there. And then sound mixing is uh, is more of a problem-solving thing. That's not fair. It's insanely creative as well. But you have to fit all the sounds in within technical specs and make sure everything is heard. There's no dialogue lost because music is too loud here. Uh, it's very uh, meticulous and uh, difficult. I, I used to do sound mixing and uh, it wasn't my thing, so I transitioned back into sound editing.
0: Got it. Well, it seems like a movie that is likely to be recognized, at least with a nomination for both, is 1917. You had emailed me that that it was as much of a ride as, as a film, and then I did see it on Monday, and it's like, it's outstanding. And I feel like the kind of music to silence, to loud, to quiet, to action, to anticipation, like, how do you begin to pull this off I guess just the nuance, like required to maintain essentially two consecutive hours of like breathless, one shot, one long crescendo.
1: It's a trick. And it's also, it's never really been done on that scale before. There is a movie called Russian, Russian Ark, I think. Anyway, uh, back in the early 2000s, a Russian movie that took place all within an uh, art museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. And, but this movie takes place over vast uh, 1917 vast uh distances. So the other film was all in a controlled space. I don't think anyone's tried it on this scale before. And not only did they try it, I think they really pulled it off. It's not a overly emotionally affecting film I didn't find. Uh but it's as I you said, I I thought it was like a ride. It was just super tense. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. And I think sound played a really big role in that. Uh because it goes silent a lot. And the silent is some of the scariest parts of that movie, because you don't know what's about to be around the corner that they're about to walk through. And uh, it's a difficult one. I, I, for our podcast, we interviewed the location sound team. Uh, and normally, you can just uh, set up a mic on someone or a boom mic and follow them around, but in this movie, the camera goes all the way around them, so you couldn't have the boom operator standing just off camera beside them because the camera was going everywhere. So they had to have mics specially built into the clothing that the characters were wearing so you couldn't see them. Uh, so the sound team was involved like from the very beginning of costume design so that mics could be put inside the fabric. Uh, and then also, because they were walking such long distances in single takes, the wireless mics wouldn't work. They were going out of distance from the mic to the recorder to actually record the sound that gets sent wirelessly. So they had to devise ways to hide antennas within the camera's view, but so that it wouldn't notice that there's a microphone antenna in 1917 field, you know. Yeah. So they had special sandbags built for the times when they're in the trenches that they hid antennas in, and they hid them in trees when there were trees to hide them in. But half of the sound work had nothing to do with sound. It was all, uh, figuring out how are we going to make this work because no one's ever attempted this before. And then in terms of sound post, it's uh, also an amazing feat because those explosions sound amazing. And that director is not uh, someone that lets stuff fly by if he's not happy. He's very meticulous.
0: That's really interesting to hear you talk about sort of the degree of difficulty. And I think another movie that you talked about on the podcast was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was taken with sort of the what sounded like the complexity and stuff that I never would have thought about just watching the movie but from capturing all these vintage car sounds to this isn't a word but like vintageizing it like making it sound like it's from another era to then kind of doing the heavy lifting of the tension in, in the spawn ranch scene in general for like you know there are some movies that come out where like somebody like me can understand why like arrival where like sound is a plot point or like bohemian rhapsody where it's like a music movie like i understand those sort of naturally as sound movies baby driver for somebody who like really understands how this work is as, as you're Looking throughout the year and, and kind of evaluating what was the best sound work in a year, is it sort of this degree of difficulty that you're talking about that is what's being recognized or is, is there something else that you look for? Well,
1: that's actually an interesting question because within the sound community, and there is a sound community, there's a lot of us soundies online that all talk to each other through uh, Facebook groups and Slack channels and stuff like that. There's a argument over if things like our podcast, Tone Benders, are good or not. like. Everyone likes listening to them, but if they're good or not when it comes to voting for these awards, because is the answer, the obstacles the sound team had to overcome to get to that sound, or is the answer, when I watched the movie, the sound was fantastic. I don't care how they got to it. Hmm. Uh, so that, that's an interesting question. I I don't know where I actually fall on that. I guess I fall a little bit on how did they get to it since I do this podcast talking to people about that. But uh, I also agree that it doesn't really matter how they got to it. If the movie works and uh, affects you, the soundtrack, that's something special. But you're right. There This year, the MPSC motion picture sound editors do their own awards called the Golden Reels. And the winner of those often affect uh, what gets goes up for the nomination for the Oscars. So their their nominees got announced uh, in early December, and the nominees are mostly big action films. So there's Avengers Endgame, the new Star Wars movie, uh, 1917 Ford vs. Ferrari. Uh, There's another big action one that I can't think of off the top of my head. But there's two that are not like that, that are also nominated, and that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which you just brought up and A Hidden Life, the Terrence Malick film, Hmm. and uh, those two are not super, like there's no massive uh, explosions, there's no sci-fi spaceships in them. So why are they considered on the same level as like Avengers Endgame, which has like 45 minute scenes of non-stop special sound effects? (laughs) And the reason is because they're also super difficult, because as hard as it is to come up with the sound of uh, Thanos' spaceship arriving and shooting giant laser cannons, the sound of the old vehicles that they're constantly driving around in, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those are hard to come up with too, because a lot of those vehicles don't really exist anymore. And if they do, they're from collectors who have souped them up and made them sound different than they might've actually sounded, uh, you know, 30 years ago, or was that 40 years ago now? I can't remember the exact date on that movie. Uh, So, and also that movie is done by uh, a crew led by a man named Wiley Statement, who's really known for, making sounds evocative and emotional. And that movie also is especially unique because it doesn't have a score. So the job of the score is normally to tell the audience what the motions are supposed to feel. Uh, And without a score, that falls to the soundtrack. Now, that movie has a lot of uh, radios and televisions playing in the background. So some of that lifting is done by the music that's playing on the radio, but those are popular songs. So we also all have uh, our own associations with those songs. So sometimes a popular song to one person is a sad song and to another person it's the song they first made out to a girl with or something (laughs) like that. So it's a happy song. So those can't be counted on the same way as original score can be. So a lot of the emotional storytelling in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and especially A Hidden Life is left to the sound design, the sound crew to have plaintive dog barks in the background to make you feel sad or to have uh, certain kinds of rain hitting certain kind of structures, or in the case of the spawn Ranch scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's just tons of really subtle metal creaking as if there's uh, old metal windmills turning. And there's just this metal grinding and creaking that builds up over the whole scene. And at first you're not sure if it's a good place or a bad place, and then as the tension builds there's more creaking, there's more grinding. And uh, there's no music at all. It's just wind and little metal sounds. And you're creeped right out. So it's really effective.
0: Yeah, that's definitely my favorite scene in the movie. Um, it's a great scene. Well, I knew I knew that uh, the time would go very fast uh, in this conversation. Um, and it's it's been fascinating to hear about it. There's obviously a number of movies that um, could be in the mix from from Rocketman to Irishman to Joker that we haven't talked all that much about. But, um, you know... Without, you know, I I know you're in direct contact with a lot of these people, so I wouldn't ask you to list rank or pick a favorite or anything, but is there anything as kind of the Oscar nominees come out that you're just hoping is recognized this year that like work that you thought was really great that you hope gets gets its day in the sun?
1: Well, I guess I have two answers to that. There's one that I, in a dream world, I would hope would be recognized, but uh, it won't. There's a documentary that it it will probably get nominated for best documentary. It's called The Cave. And it's a documentary about... uh, suburb in Syria that the entire suburb has been blown away. The buildings are all rubble from the war, but the people haven't all left yet. And the hospital was blown away, but before it was destroyed, the people at the hospital managed to move all of the medical equipment into the sub basements of the hospital. And uh, they're still running a hospital in a city that needs one because there's bombings happening constantly. So there's tons of injured people. And they're trying to run this hospital without any supplies, uh, all underground and the reason that the sound is so amazing you don't normally think of sound design in a documentary but there's a lot of sound done and it's all about the war that's above you so this movie almost entirely takes place underground at the very end we go over uh, above ground but and this the whole movie is the what makes it work is you hear the war above you
0: mm.
1: that you never see so the entire tension and stress and reason for this hospital to exist is being told through sound uh, that all takes place above you. And if you get to see that documentary in Atmos, it's amazing. Atmos is a special... uh, it's not even that new anymore, but more and more theaters are using it where there's speakers on the roof of the theater. And uh, if you get to see it in that context where all the exploding is actually happening above you while you're watching the movie, it's unbelievably effective. Uh, it's the best use of Atmos I've ever heard, and I thought it was the best use of sound of the year. But a documentary is never going to get nominated mm. for uh, Best Sound. But it, it should get nominated for Best Documentary, I would uh, suspect. The director has been nominated before, so he's got the pedigree.
0: I'm seeing it Monday, so I'll uh, I'll definitely listen out for that.
1: Yeah, it, the sound is amazing in that film. It's not You're not going to be bowled over by it. Again, it's not Avengers Endgame, but when you leave, you will be heartbroken, sad, and... Uh, the tension of that is all through the sound, and there's not much music in it. It's it's an amazing film. Uh, so go out and see that, anyone listening. Uh, but in terms of the best sounding picture that I saw this year, um, Avengers Endgame is an amazing tour de forces because there's so much happening, and they have to pull focus with sound. They have to have the the ending scene. I don't want to give it away to anybody, but there's like literally a hundred superheroes fighting a hundred bad guys, and then a thousands of armies on top of that, and they have to pull focus with sound between each little battle as the camera goes between all the different things happening, and that is an exceptionally difficult thing to do. That's both sound editing and sound mixing. Uh, so that one was really impressive, and Ford vs Ferrari was another one that knocked, uh, kind of blew me away. That They had to go and get all these sounds of race cars from uh, the 60s, and it sounds amazing. The, the cars, you feel like you're in them. There's a specific scene. Have you seen Ford vs. Ferrari? Yeah. Yeah, so the scene where they put the uh, president of Ford, oh, Ford, yeah. uh, Henry Ford second, in a car just on the, the uh, tarmac at an airport and have him race around so he can feel what it's like to be in a car. And uh, literally the person beside me in the theater had a panic attack during that scene. And a lot of that was because of the sound. It's just so crazy when you're in the car with them right there. Uh, I loved that scene. The person
0: beside me didn't love it as much. No, yeah, but the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was amazing. And the like 30 minute Levons race at the end of it was quite the Yeah, it's, a,
1: it's amazing.
0: Well, listen, Tim, this was, a, this was great. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And I uh, hope that I can talk to you again sometime. And anybody who wants to hear more about these movies, Tim goes really in depth with a lot of the people that did this work on Tone Tonebenders. So I um, highly, highly recommend checking that out.
1: Yeah, you can find us at www.tonebenderspodcast.com.
0: Great. Well, thank you again and, um, and have a great day.
1: Yeah, you too. Thanks for talking to me.
0: Thanks.